Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 2nd, 2022. Uh, it is um, lunchtime or getting towards lunchtime on the West Coast, on the East Coast in the afternoon. You're still discussing, or certainly on the East Coast and throughout the world, uh, Biden's State of the Union speech yesterday evening. Um, according to the New York Times, uh, Biden suggested that Putin badly miscalculated in invading Ukraine. It was mostly a foreign policy State of the Union, which may have in some senses saved him. The um, the uh, the Times, one of their critics, concludes uh, that America was together, only, if only for a few moments. Uh, the review um, uh, elsewhere hasn't always been that good on Biden's State of the Union. The Wall Street Journal, you wouldn't expect them necessarily to be too sympathetic as a fairly conservative newspaper. Their key takeaways were all about the lack of radicalism and the... Uh, the journal concludes that Biden missed the moment. I'm not entirely sure what that moment should be. doesn't seem as if the Democrats are delivering these days. Uh, my guest today on the show, uh, Michael Kazin, had an interesting essay uh, last week in the New York Times with the headline, Democrats used to be able to get things done. What happened? Uh, Kazin uh, asks why Biden's ambitions for a new deal uh, have actually uh, stalled. Um, what Democrats are missing, uh, Kazin concluded, is a, is a social movement. He's put all this from the op-ed into a new book. It was out yesterday, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party by Michael Kazin, very distinguished writer, uh, um, political analyst on the left and also a teacher at Georgetown University. And I'm thrilled that Michael is joining us from, appropriately enough, Washington, D.C., uh, from his office at Georgetown. Um, Michael, were you unimpressed with the, the Biden State of the Union, or are you giving him the benefit of the doubt? Well, it was like a lot of State of the Union addresses. Um, it started with a bang, of course. Um, I use that word <laughs> advisedly, um, talking about the, the war in Ukraine and um, the unity yeah. among most Americans, uh, except some you know, supporters of Donald Trump and probably Donald Trump himself. Um, and of course, most countries in the world has witnessed the um, United Nations Assembly vote today. I think uh, only five countries voted against uh, um, a condemnation of, uh, of Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. But after that, it descended into, you know, the usual laundry list of uh, programs, some of which have a chance to be passed, most of which, unfortunately, from my point of view, do not, given the uh, tenacity of the filibuster and those who supported it in the Senate. Um, so, um, you know, it was, I, I agreed with most of what he said, but, uh, you know, these, these, these addresses, I think, have become less important over time, especially as most people get their news um, online, uh, as opposed to sitting and watching an hour speech, uh, hour long speech. So I don't think it's going to have much impact, to be honest. Your book, uh, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party, has the whiff of nostalgia about it, as if the Democratic <laughs> Party used to be able to win and it's lost that ability. 
Is it a nostalgic book, Michael? Are you a nostalgist for other ages, other worlds which no longer exist? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, why, why do you hope not? Well, because uh, nostalgia is uh, the refuge of, uh, of a loser. Although you, you, you said earlier before we went on camera that uh, you're a great, great admirer of Proust as a writer, perhaps the greatest of all nostalgias. So it's not necessarily a bad sentiment, nostalgia, is it? Uh, I say Proust uh, is the master of memory, not necessarily nostalgia. They aren't the same thing. Nostalgia is a way of, of feeling sorry that you can't bring the past, the past back. I'm a historian, so historians try to find patterns in the past, uh, we don't think the past invents itself. We don't think the past can be repeated. Um, and yet there are things to learn from the past. And the argument in my book is that the Democrats have done best uh, and have actually dominated political eras at a few times when they were able to put forth um, what I call a, a vision of moral capitalism. That is a sense that the government, the party, first of all, and, and the government, when the party controls the government, can be on the side of ordinary people to help them against big business, can help wage earners um, get, um, you know, better conditions uh, on the job, uh, can pass programs like Social Security, like Medicare, which benefit the great majority of Americans, uh, can tax the rich more, uh, programs like that. And and Democrats have strayed away from that since the 1960s for all kinds of reasons we can we can talk about. And but that's one of their problems, I think, is that they they have not had a clear uh, message and a clear set of programs uh, to tell most voters who are actually people who you know work for somebody else uh, or have very small businesses uh, what the party can do for them. And that's in a nutshell that's the that's the message of the book. And I think Democrats. I'm not nostalgic about that because I think Democrats can still, uh, and different ways, still try to present uh, that kind of program, that kind of message. Um, but uh, it's a very heterogeneous party. Uh, it's harder to satisfy all the different groups that are within uh, that consider themselves to be Democrats uh, with a capital D. That's one of the problems they have. Uh, well, Michael, course, you, you say yeah. you're not a nostalgist, but yeah. you look back maybe I, I won't use the N-word, you look back um, sympathetically at three movements within the Democratic Party. The first, in some ways, back to Wilson. Is that fair? Do you see Woodrow Wilson as a kind of inspiration in some way in terms of the coalitions in the 20th century that he put together? Uh, first, let me let me uh, um, correct you a little bit. I'd say I look back empathetically, not sympathetically. That is, as a historian, I try to understand how Democrats accomplished what they accomplished. Right, so we can learn from the past, so we'll okay. past, exactly. empathetically as well, opposed well, to... I mean, what, what, happened, what happened with Wilson, I talk about this in that Times op-ed that you mentioned, and in the book as well. What happened with, with in the Wilson era, which was not really an era, it was about four years that the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency, is that they did respond to what was a pretty powerful... Uh, anti-monopoly impulse among small farmers, among workers, among small business people generally, um, that the big interests, uh, the money power, as it was called, were had far too much power in the country. And it's then that you began to have uh, serious regulatory reforms, um, Interstate Commerce Commission, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act, uh, which set up the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Reserve, um, which put the government in charge of, you know, uh, expanding the money supply or um, uh, and setting interest rates. Uh, 
And also uh, the first time you had an eight-hour day uh, that was legislated uh, for a certain group of workers who were railroad workers in 1916. Uh, the problem, of course, is that this was a, a racist party. Uh, it was a party that uh, the strength, the, the greatest uh, constituency of, of which was in the White South. Um, right. And White Wilson South. himself was a notorious anti-Semite, racist, descendant of slave uh, owners. We not, had... a, not an anti-Semite. In fact, uh, the first it Jewish... Was? No, the first Jewish uh, justice of the Supreme Court uh, was nominated by by Wilson. Uh, his name is uh, Brandeis, Louis Brandeis. Um, so no, he was not an anti-Semite. Uh, he's, he's 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 innocent of that one. But uh, but uh, you know, his father was a uh, uh, had been a, a minister in the Confederate South and uh, was a minister actually to the Confederate Army. Um, and so Wilson, you know, you couldn't he couldn't get that far past his uh, his father in that sense. And even though he did appeal to some. Black voters, uh, um, W.B. Du Bois supported him in 1912, for example. But clearly, he was still a white Southerner at heart. And he was also, we did a show actually on Wilson um, a couple of weeks ago with the historian Neil Lankto on uh, Wilson's foreign policy and his his decision to go into the First World War. He presented Wilson as a, a fairly arrogant man, a man unwilling to change his positions. How, how do you see Wilson as a politician in terms of grasping historical opportunities? Did he mm -hmm. recognize what he was doing in putting this social coalition together, what you call a, a more responsible capitalism or social capitalism? I think he did. I mean, he'd been a pretty conservative figure. I mean, the Democratic Party throughout the 19th century, uh, up until the 1890s, was a party that believed in the, the, the government uh, uh, should do as little as possible, the federal government especially, because they thought the federal government would always be the creature of of financial elite. Um, so uh, it was, uh, in that sense, uh, very much, and I know you're ambivalent about this, d defining the, the Democratic Party as Jeffersonian. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly Jefferson was, a, uh, was an inspiration for Democrats, even though I don't think he actually founded the modern party. Uh, that really didn't happen till, till Jackson in the 1820s. But uh, think about Wilson. I mean, I wrote a whole book on the anti-war movement during World War One, so I've thought a lot about Wilson actually in terms of his both domestic policy and foreign policy. And I think he, this was what a, a war, a war, war against uh, war, a war against war. Yeah, and it, and, and it seems as if Michael, these so these social movements in America are, are most on the left are most enthused, and most effective in times of foreign crisis, Vietnam. Um, the fight against the First World War, is it more domestic, do you think? No, I think it's more domestic. I mean, anti-war movements um, really like meteors. You know, they, they get started when the war begins, and, and if the war goes badly, they continue like the anti-Vietnam War movement. But if the war goes well, and the US, U.S. won the war within, you know, a year, a year and a half after the U.S. entered World War I, then the, then the movement pretty much, you know, flames out, doesn't leave much uh, behind it. But no, I mean, look at the, the most important reform movements in American history, the abolitionist movement, which, of course, succeeded because of war. But but it, mm, it was and we've done a number of shows. Actually, we did a show a couple of days ago with uh, J.D. Dickey uh, on uh -huh. the abolitionist movement. And look, the labor movement, which which to my mind is the most important movement in the history of the Democratic Party, 1930s and 1940s, when it signed up uh, about 35 percent of all uh, private sector workers. Uh, without that movement, Democratic Party does not become the New Deal Party, the modern liberal party that we think of it as. Um, labor movement was absolutely essential and also essential to, uh, as I argue in the book, to um, 
beginning to um, uh, cleanse, if you will, the party of its racist past, uh, because the unions, especially the industrial unions of the CIO in the 1930s and 40s, uh, were interracial unions, and they were essential to uh, Democrats winning. In Michael, in we've done States. so many shows in which historians and polemicists have said, well, if only we could go back to the New Deal, if only we could go back to the period just after the Second World War, if only we could return to this kind of, uh, you might call, responsible capitalism. So can we really learn from FDR? Can we learn from the 1930s? Or, or, or is, again, that a form, and, and you may not like this word, of, of, of nostalgia, of fairy tales? What we can learn, I think, is you've got to build a um, heterogeneous coalition, different classes, different races, different regions, and you've got to build it on something which gives everybody in that coalition something they can call their own. That to me is, you know, it's not nostalgia, it's just common sense politically, but common sense that Democrats have sometimes uh, forgotten. Uh, and um, you know, so that to me is not, I don't want to, obviously you can't return to the past, but you can learn something from the past and you can learn when Democrats were able to be successful, you know, they did continue to learn from their own past. Are you talking about a, a, a progressive populism? We've done a number of shows on yes. this. I, yes. I had um, the Harvard, I guess, technology uh, technocrat Eric Protzer on talking about a, a kind of centrist or a, a left centrist populism rooted in the ideas of someone like Emmanuel Macron. We had Thomas Frank in defense of a, a more traditional kind of left-wing populism. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of uh, Thomas Frank. We had, he's a friend, actually. Yeah. yeah, and he's a good writer, a very important writer. We had Michael Lind on the show talking about class war warfare and populism. What kind of progressive populism are you trying to reclaim or reinvent or create for the early 21st century, Michael? Well, very much the one that both Michael and, and, and Thomas uh, talk about. Uh, the difference, I, I'd say, is that, you know, um, especially Michael Lynn would like to sort of leave recent immigrants out of it, would like to uh, sometimes... I'm not sure if he would actually agree with that, but anyway, go yeah, on. Anyway, but I, I mean, I think, I think he's you know he's he's a little bit of an America firster, I think, uh, and also and also I think he he sees you know what we've come to call racial justice as uh, something of distraction at, at times from the main task. And the problem is you know we are a multiracial country, and obviously there's a history of racism both in the Democratic Party and elsewhere. So so you can't act as if it doesn't exist. At the same time, you do I think have to use populist rhetoric. You do have to talk about the people as a whole, not various peoples, various groups all the time. Um, because then, you know, you're, you're just talking about, uh, you know, putting together some sort of potpourri um, of programs, which in the end uh, uh, don't convince uh, a majority. And um, the task, as for any populist, for any small D Democrat, is how do you win over a majority? How do you get that majority to not just support um, the party, but also to organize itself? Um, Something I stressed in that Times op-ed you mentioned before is, you know, all politics can't be from the top down. Um, if there's any really important... Right, and you mentioned um, that this needs to come perhaps from outside D.C. But then the question becomes, Michael, do you even need the Democratic Party? It seems so archaic, so so well, dysfunctional on uh, so many uh, levels. I mean, uh, uh, AOC came out this morning 
uh, calling uh, Biden's speech a lost opportunity. Why Why is AOC and Bernie Sanders, I mean, not that Bernie Sanders is even in the Democratic Party, what, why are they in the same party? Why not just create a new party? Well, we have this structure in American politics uh, that makes it pretty, pretty hard, almost impossible for a third party to get very far. The Electoral College uh, is like that, the first past the post system, as they call it in Britain, uh, which we we have uh, even more than they do in Britain uh, with only the two parties. And legally, it's very difficult for third parties to get on the ballot. So there's a reason why third parties have never succeeded in America, with the possible exception of the Republicans, who really basically just took over from a failing party, the Whig Party in the 1850s. Um, structurally, it doesn't work. Uh, it would be nice if we had a multi-party system. It would be nice if we had proportional voting. I'm in favor of all those things, but, but um, most Americans don't care much about process. They want, to, they want to talk about results. And one of the best things that's ever happened to progressives, I think, in the recent decades is that Bernie Sanders ran for president as a Democrat. He might not call himself a Democrat, but he basically is a Democrat. You know, He doesn't have an independent party. He doesn't have a socialist party uh, to run on. So he's, he's a Democrat in all but, uh, all but uh, terms. Um, AOC, the same way, all the members of the uh, Progressive Caucus. Are so you're essentially, and, and I don't mean this in any critical way, you're essentially in favor of AOC and Bernie Sanders essentially defining the Democratic Party. Is that fair? Yeah, as long as they can do it in a way that wins elections. <laughs> right yeah, now, which, uh, and you don't even seem convinced of that, Michael. I'm, I'm, I'm talking with yeah. Michael uh, Kazin, the author of What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Fascinating conversation, perhaps a little depressing, but important. <laughs> Uh, Michael, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. I want to talk about the nature of populism. I want to talk about right wing populism and what it will take to win in the early 21st century. Uh, So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Michael Kazin, the distinguished Washington, D.C. historian, polemicist and the author of a new book just came out yesterday, What It Took to Win. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of Uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Michael Kazin, the author of What It Took to Win, a history of uh, the Democratic Party and, and what it historically took to win to redefine America. Uh, Michael, uh, before the break, I mentioned that I had J.D. Dickey on the show actually earlier this week. Uh, he has a new book out on the rise of abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. And we talked about the highly racist nature of the white working class followers of Jackson. It hasn't really changed America over 200 years, has it? How are you going to fight that racism? Or how does the Democratic Party historically been able to do that? How has it been able to win over a white working class that for the last 200 years, not every member of the white working class, has seemed to be driven by hostility to African-Americans? Well, first of all, when when white people get in institutions with um, black people and and other people of color, uh, that helps, I think, to reduce their racism. Um, West Virginia used to be a a solidly democratic state uh, because the major institution um, that involved working people in West Virginia was United Mine Workers, the coal miners, and uh, that was an integrated union. And uh, of course, there was still racism, uh, interpersonal racism, but institutionally, everyone got the same wages regardless of their race. Uh, everybody uh, got a really good health care plan in hospitals that were run by the United Mine Workers. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no shortcut to getting people involved in common institutions. So are you saying that unions are the way to fight racism? We had uh, Sarah Horowitz on the show. I'm sure you know her work as well. Um, She has an interesting new book out, Mutualism, trying to reinvent trade unions in the 21st century. Don't we need to change the nature of trade unions, Michael, if they are to remain relevant in the 21st century? We can't just go back to 20th century unionization. No, no. And, and, and in some ways, we need to have more of the kind of um, uh, sort of uprisings or insurgencies like, the, like, like Fight for 15, which won a lot of people $15 an hour wage, uh, a lot of fast food restaurants. That was, that was sparked by, the, by a union, the Service Employees Union. Was this in was Nevada? Not, no, this... no, it was all the country. Fight for 15 right. is one, is one uh, um, McDonald's uh, workers and other fast food workers, Burger King workers, um, other workers to um, uh, $15 an hour wage. Some of them are only making $10 or $11 an hour. So it was a huge, a huge advance. Uh, and it was sparked by a union, but it, it didn't, unfortunately, help to, to uh, build union membership. But it did help to get people a better situation. And, and it was, you know, most of the workers they were helping were not white, were not white workers, even though the leadership of the union is but white. But this is not a huge vote getter. This is not inspiring history, unions, Michael. It's not going to change the nature of no, America. I'm, I'm it, never, it may have in the 20th century, but it certainly isn't in the early 21st century, is it? No, but if you organize people into working class institutions uh, in which they mix with people from other races, whether or not they're unions, whether or not they're, they're worker centers, maybe local democratic parties, uh, um, then, you know, that helps to promote. So are you saying that we get rid of a racism in America by and, and, and white working class racism by make by putting white and black and brown people into unions? Is that well, they, have to be in this, they have to they have to mix with one another and learn and white people learn that black people aren't uh, 
you know, uh, some sort of criminal uh, element in the society. Um, and look, that's happening with young people. I mean, young people are much less racist, I think, uh, than than their parents are. And um, and they also are more progressive in their politics generally, and partly because they've grown up and gone to school in, in most parts of the country with uh, uh, with people of other races in a way that was not true uh, in my generation. You know, I, I went to elementary school in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and uh, I had a black teacher, but no black students in the class. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that, I think demographically things are changing, especially in, in metropolitan areas and, uh, and suburbs, and to some degree in other, other parts of the country as well. I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah, but um, this is making a much more of a... Se- I mean, you mentioned in your New York Times piece the fact that the new coalition in the Democratic Party is middle class. So learning from Wilson or Roosevelt or the Great Society under Johnson is not entirely relevant, is it? Uh, no, but I mean, that's what I'm saying is that the Democrats have to appeal more to working people based on their interests. Uh, uh, it's not so middle, much middle class. It's, as I mentioned in the piece, it's more like more people like me, you know, uh, educated, uh, living in the metropolitan areas and uh, some of the well, you're never going to you know you're a you're a you're an aristocratic leftist michael you were educated at harvard and stanford you teach at georgetown uh you sound like someone who who's always on npr you're not <laughs> you're not a you're not an inspiration for a mass-based movement i'm not an organizer either i'm a historian i'm not i'm not the one who's going to be organizing this all i can do is but, say, but my point is in, in all seriousness where are you going to find your mass movement you're not convincing me I'm sorry, but these mass movements are beginning. There are people organizing at Google. There are people organizing at Starbucks. I'm not saying this is the wave of the future. I'm not saying it's definitely going to be as large as the CIO was in the 1930s. Uh, I can't. I can't tell you that. But I think you know, as I mentioned in that article in the Times, unions are actually more popular now than they have been in more than 50 years, and especially popular Which isn't among saying young, much. people. I, I, I mean, sure, there are new, new and we talked with. I talked to Sarah Horowitz about this. Yeah. Um, different kinds of unions uh, dealing in a, with a, with a precarious style economy. Uh, unions organized yeah. on on Uber drivers, but I'm not convinced that's going to change uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, anyway, let's talk about. We haven't really talked about the populism on the right and conservatism. I, I've used this quote. I've used more times than any other one I've had in the show. It's by the. Um, the historian, uh, the intellectual historian Edmund Fawcett, he has two wonderful books out, one on liberalism, one on conservatism. And he wrote, were politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives, who began as anti-moderns, came to master modernity. For the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. And I think for better or worse, Fawcett is right. Why has the right, Michael, been such a master of modernity from Andrew Jackson to Donald Trump to Peter Thiel? What is it about conservatives that make them such so much more innovative when it comes to modernity? I'm not sure that's true, but I, I argue about that. But I mean, modernity, if modernity means, uh, you know, cultural change, then obviously the left has been uh, out in the forefront of pushing cultural change in many ways about gender, about race. Um, the right has been very good at... Um, but they haven't been able to package oh, it on, in political on. terms. Go on, I, go on. I think the right, the right's been very good at turning cultural resentments into uh, political victory at, at various times, uh, as in Virginia 
uh, last uh, last year. This you know the the back um, the whites very good at backlash politics, um, which I think what? sorry at backlash politics um, at at politics against um, what they accuse the left liberals. Um, of doing and favoring. And I mean, that's been a success. I wrote a whole book, you know, if you see it on your screen called The Populist Persuasion several years ago about how um, from McCarthyism really in the 1950s. Right, you wrote American uh, Dreamers and then uh, no, yeah, Populist called, Persuasion. Called the yeah. Populist Persuasion, yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, that's great, there it is, yeah. Uh, um, and the argument there is that uh, uh, right-wing populism is successful because right-wing populism, I think, appeals to um, a sense that the left uh, is is an elite, which is um, but isn't there some truth to that? Yeah, but you, you, even you acknowledge that that the no, new coalition, for better or worse, in the Democratic Party is upper middle class. Yeah, but there's also a lot of elite, a lot, a, a lot of elite figures in the Republican Party too, like Peter Thiel, who you just mentioned. Right. No, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm far yeah. from being a Republican, but yeah. I, I think we just have to be honest here that the working class, especially white working class people now identify with the Republican Party rather than true. the Democratic Party. And that's true. And that's a lot because I think of, of, of the backlash to the, to, the, to, the, to the cultural changes that the left helped to bring in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, gay liberation, feminism, uh, black power and so forth, and Black Lives Matter more, more recently, actually, um, a huge movement, which, of course, has provoked a huge backlash as well. Um, I mean, this is an old story in American politics and American culture as well, that I would say you can define modernity in many different ways, but I would say, you know, uh, that uh, in many ways the right uh, is might use modern technology, which they obviously do, uh, to uh, try to convince people to go back, make America great again, to go back to a uh, an imagined past where uh, white people were in, in control in a way that many white people don't feel they are in control now anymore. And that includes, unfortunately, a lot of working class white people as well. Michael, do we need to tear up the old playbook, the Great Society, New Deal, Wilsonian playbook uh, of 20th century, which from a progressive point of view was built on a strong state? I had um, Jamie Suskin, uh, English writer on politics and technology on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he argued that the, the dominant issue from progressives in the 20th century was the was the relationship between the state and the individual. In the 21st century, because of technology, everything changes. We have new technologies, blockchain, distributed technologies, network technologies, which which change that conversation. Do we need to leave behind all these ideas about the New Deal and Great Society and FDR and JFK and Johnson and Wilson? and really try to rewrite the progressive playbook in the 21st century? Well, obviously things change, but we still have a state. People still need the state. If they need the state, they can still want things from the state, and they can still make demands on the state. And uh, we still have a two-party system. So certain things, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, haven't changed. Um, um, blockchain technology is not going to replace uh, the Federal Reserve anytime soon, or, or credit cards for that matter. And and, um, you know, uh, many times in, in history, technology um, has been heralded as, you know, it's going to change everything. Well, it changes a lot of things, but it doesn't change them all at once. And it changes them usually, at least at first, within the structures of society we already have. And for a long time, you know, we're going to have national states. And as long as you have national states, you've got to have 
um, politicians and movements which uh, are arguing for uh, those states uh, helping the majority with various social programs and with movements that push that uh, those programs and help to make those programs popular. So to me, you know, the, the, the shiny new thing technologically, um, whether it be the internet or blockchain or whatever, um, or sending people up to to planets for the for the vacations <laughs> or the moon for the vacations, um, I'm not convinced uh, that that this is going to change politics in any kind of revolutionary way. Uh, it hasn't so, so far. So when it comes back to that chess move, you you don't think that the left, the progressives, need to work on their chess game. Well, I don't play chess, so uh, I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm using it. I mean, in all seriousness, we're um, using that in a, as a metaphor. Yeah, right? I we'd all lose against Teal because he's a master chess player. It's um, about power, but yeah. but chess is a game of power, and perhaps the point that Fawcett is making, implicitly at least, is that the left has been very bad at playing the game of power, and that you know AOC I think, I think and Bernie and all these people are just continuting to, to lose that game. I wonder, um, one of the unexpected... Just a second. I mean, you know, things would be, things would, would be very different, obviously, if the Democrats had two more seats in the Senate, right? Um, so talking about the, you know, the left losing, I mean, I, I would argue that, you know, obviously having two more seats in the Senate wouldn't solve all our problems by any means, all the Democratic Party's problems. But all these programs that that have now languishing or probably fail in the Build Back Better program would all pass with two more Democratic seats. Uh, so you know, contingency matters. You know, elections matter. And I, I take that point. But even the Build Back yeah. Better initiative—it's not the New Deal. It's not even Great Society, is it? Would it profoundly change everything in America? Well, not profoundly, but those those didn't profoundly change it. But well, the New Deal did. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it, you know, arguably it, it wouldn't have without World War II. You could argue it really wouldn't have because the Republicans probably would have won the election in 1940 and would have wiped out a lot of the New Deal if they could have. But uh, but I think again, contingency matters. But but I think uh, you know what what Build Back Better could have done. Uh, it would have done what I think the Democrats should always be doing: as put into place universal programs that help people across racial lines, across regional lines. You know, free pre kindergarten and expanding Medicare to cover uh, dental care and and um, and uh, um, hearing um, all kinds of other plans that we won't go into. Um, and all these things, you know, in a couple of years, people said, that's just great. Democrats really did something I like. Maybe maybe the government can really do something to help people. And who knows what would have happened? Other things would happen like wars, as we see now, to come in, into play. Domestic politics, not all of politics. But I think they would have you know, giving people a sense they ha that people haven't had since the 1960s in a serious way um, that Democrats can actually govern effectively and provide things that most Americans want and need. And that would have mattered, I think. So, Michael, you remain a, a, a statist wedded to a certain <laughs> way of doing politics. You may be right. Um, you probably are. It's rather depressing, but maybe you are one of the, the big... Are you an anarchist? Are you an anarchist? Well, I was about to bring that up. I'm not, I'm not anything. I'm just the guy asking questions. Um, <laughs> one of the big unexpected literary hits of last year was David Graeber's posthumous right. book about anarchism, essentially. Uh, we did a show with William Derisewicz, who, who wrote about Graeber's vision, his what we call his alternative anthropology. 
Is that anarchist tradition? Should it be revived, Michael? Is it credible in the 21st century? Graeber certainly hit a nerve. Yeah. And this idea of going back before the state. He was one of the inspirations for Occupy, as you know. Um, um, You know, I have a lot of affection for anarchists. Uh, I used to be one as a teenager. You know, uh, a lot of teenagers are anarchists as a we had a little authority, Michael. You used Sorry. to be one as a teenager. <laughs> well, you know, uh, but I think you know the problem with, with anarchism is is uh, it's the most romantic, um, most optimistic political philosophy one can imagine. Uh, the idea that left alone, people organize themselves quite well, and I wish that were true. But um, you know, again, as a historian, you know, I think there's a reason why. That hasn't happened historically uh, uh, because, you know, people people want some kind of authority in their lives. Most people do. Um, they don't want well, don't to we also, need romance we want... on the progressive left, because otherwise, as you've suggested, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, they, the Occupy movement, it got people out on the street. Yeah, um, that's great. But that's not enough, obviously, because you've got to you've got to convert that into political victories. But organizing, union organizing isn't and hasn't and won't. Well, again, it did in the 30s and 40s. And it, did it did in the 30s and 40s, yeah. but that was 80 years ago, Michael. I know, but but still, I mean, as weak as they are, you know, without public workers unions, Democrats would not win uh, in a lot of places. Uh, you know, those those unions, the ones that are still strong, like the American Federation of Teachers, like AFSCME, the state and county Yeah, but the teachers union, union is matter. fairly reactionary. I don't think even you're a fan of them, are you? Yeah, I am. I actually. You are. Anyway, Michael Kazin, you've done very well. I apologize for my rather. No, that's fine. It's not hostile. It's just I've just had so many of these conversations, and you're a big boy. You can look after yourself intellectually. It's just I'm not convinced, but maybe you're right. What it took to win a history of the Democratic Party, Michael Kazin, one of the the most articulate and erudite of historians (laughs) of the left of progressivism in America, but still believes that. We or you can win. I hope he's right. Michael, what else should people be reading on March 2nd, 2022, in addition to your new book? Well, if you have time, you should read uh, uh, Marcel Proust's four-volume novel, Remembrance of Things Past. Which, which isn't nostalgic, right? We're not, it doesn't, well, we, we it's don't about, define it with memory, the Memory, not nostalgia. Memory, not nostalgia. Right, it's memory a, rather uh, than nostalgia. It's a beautiful novel. It's beautifully written. There's a lot of sex in it, romance in it. He was gay, but he doesn't cop to that in the book. But, uh, but it's 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 an inspiring piece of writing, and uh, everyone um, put it on their bucket list wherever you call it should should read that. And you should also read the great Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm, uh, yeah. um, who wrote a great four volume again history of the world, focused mostly on Europe, not only Europe, but uh, you know he's to, to my mind he's the greatest historian uh, I've ever read. So, well, we can't get Hobsbawm on the show, but next month we're going to come close. We're going to have. His daughter, Julia Hobsbawm, a dear friend of mine, talking about the post office. What well, I'm not sure if she's a Marxist, but uh, she's carrying the, the Hobsbawm torch into the 21st century. So all good suggestions, Michael. And I think your issue of memory as opposed to nostalgia is an important one. We've talked about memory a lot on the show and an American tendency towards amnesia. So that might be another conversation. Finally, Michael Kazin, the author of What It Took to win in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, Michael, who's, who's, who runs the world? Who's in charge? Nobody. That's part of the problem. 